97 South's Storytellers features conversations with professional songwriters and seeks to pull back the curtain on the art, craft, and career of songwriting. We'll bring you to those magical moments of creativity that have delivered the inspiring songs that make up the soundtrack of our lives. I'm Paul McGuire, and today I'm talking to Glass Tiger's Alan Frew. Scottish-Canadian artist-songwriter Alan Frew of Glass Tiger fame, who penned U.S. chart-topping hits Don't Forget Me, and someday is responsible for a catalog of multi-platinum and gold albums that have earned a Grammy Award nomination and multiple Junos. He's a recipient of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal in recognition of his service to the Canadian arts and his dedication to helping poverty-stricken children. I was looking at your Instagram page, there was a, a post that you put up I thought was so simple and beautiful and it got such great reactions from people. You just basically asked people, what does music mean to you? Yes. What a great question. You're going to learn so much about each person that responds just from the way that they respond to yeah, it, right? Yeah, and ironically, I'm shooting a pilot for a potential TV show called Life Through Music. Okay. And that was why I asked that question. Because I've had this idea for several years now where it's a kind of Anthony Bourdain type quest where music is the central theme. And you're right, it's a simple question, but some of those answers that came in, yeah, it just, the life altering. People are going to reveal so much about themselves, whether you're in the music industry or right. you're just a fan and, and everybody exactly. in between. And that's the other thing about it. It's not attached just to musicians. That's far right. from it. Yeah. You know, I think about what music really, really means to me. And you would think it would naturally take me to the stage, but it doesn't. It takes me to that wee prefabricated house post-war Coatbridge, Scotland, with my dad entertaining us. I think about how music was was the saving grace of, you know, post-war kind of miserable industrial lifestyle where everybody was just trying to make ends meet and you had to make your own fun. Without music, you could never have had that fun. And so my dad would entertain us. He was a musician. No, he was just a he was just an old entertainer. He'd go in the kitchen and he'd get ready and say his name was Burlington Bertie and and or he was the Red Shadow, um, uh, like Rudolph Valentino. Love it. Yeah. And he would come in and do this whole "My desert is waiting," and we'd all be and your aunties would fight over who was going to be the leading lady, Esmeralda, because if you weren't Esmeralda, then you were just a dancing girl. <laughs> And he would put on these these shows, and then then it was then once he finished, it was a sing song, so you had to sing, you had to give us something. It wasn't just a line from a song that he was already singing. You had to introduce something no, new. No, 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 no. He's done his entertainment, yeah. and now we're all gathered around having a few drinks. Yeah. And we were only kids, yeah. and now it's a sing song, and everybody has to come up with a song. So he was theatrical, a yes. bit, bit, yeah, and, very animated, very animated, and interested in in creating a positive atmosphere. Absolutely. What and, a wonderful memory. Then. And me not realizing that that's my apprenticeship right there. Then I go to school and I convince some pals that we should get up in front of the class and pretend we're the Beatles. Yeah. Now, we didn't even know the term air guitar. Yeah, we just, we just did it. Yeah. 
And the four of us, we get up there, one, two, three, four, and then dang, 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 and dang, and there we were, uh, entertaining the class. Did you have a chance to tell your dad that? Like, that's where you got, did, he didn't realize the seed he was planting at that time, no, obviously. No, so, no. Um, yes, because he then, we come to Canada, and he lived long enough to see us crack it. Yeah. So he then sort of lived vicariously through his, okay, good. Through his son. And he got to see me play Maple Leaf Gardens. He got to see me play the Sky Dome. I saw you play Maple Leaf Gardens. Oh, did you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, my dad got to come to all that. So he realized the damage that he did and those very joyous celebrations in your house. Yeah, he loved it. <laughs> he loved that's, it. Fan- that's so fantastic. Were your friends having similar experiences in their houses when you were little? Yeah, it was, a, it was pretty much a way of life. It was, yeah. Although, that being said, I guess in the same way that... When you think of musicians, you know, there's a hierarchy yeah. of writing. And some of us are in this group, and then it comes down, gets a little more amateurish, and maybe like your dad, yeah. tinkering and whatnot. Yeah. So the same sort of went for the enter, for the families who were really good at entertaining. Okay. Yeah. So people would gravitate to the fruit house. Is that true? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Because we were good at it. Uh, There's a good show going on. We ex- got to go down the street. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I had neighbors across the street who might come over on the odd night, but if you went to their house, it was few and far between whether you'd have the same kind of night. I mean, the way that you're speaking about it, I'm there. You're painting a really, really good picture. You're a great storyteller, obviously. We know that already, but it sounds like you have very fond memories of that. Did you have the radio on? Mm-hmm. What kind of music? So you had the BBC. Yeah. But then all of a sudden, this thing, Radio Luxembourg, came out. Okay. Where the, the pirates, they call it the pirate yeah. radio, where they were just off the coast enough where they didn't uh, come under the jurisdiction. of, And so now they could play Hey Jude at six and a half minutes, and uh, they could play this new band, Led Zeppelin, or the Rolling Stones, who were a very naughty band. Yeah. And, you know, and we'd have this little transistor radio with an aerial and sometimes you have to lay in your bed and hold it a certain way. Is that way, right? Yeah. Hold it a certain way, and you get the music coming in. Because the mainstream was still very much uh, supervised yeah. and uh, censored. So pirate radio was the beginning of that. You know, I talk to a lot of artists, performers, songwriters now, and their introduction to the music industry, or their introduction to music, the seed of what becomes a career, can be so different. For you, the performative side of things was what attracted you to at first. Exactly. Yeah. We had nothing. We had nothing. You know, when your mum said, what do you want for dinner tonight? A pot of soup would be on the, the stove for four days. When I was young, a local lad handmade these little guitars. And I don't know, maybe even for 20 quid or less, my dad finally got me my first guitar. It was still really all about learning enough wee chords to sing a little folk song or something. And then in 1972, we came to Canada, and that old guitar came with me. And I met this guy, Martin Ridgely, who then teaches me some more chords. And I distinctly remember the first time ever. uh, I know exactly where I was, and I was strumming this little piece very McCartney-esque. Yeah. But all of a sudden, I went, nobody wrote that. 
I, I've just written that. Yeah. And that was the, the moment where the shift happened, where now it becomes about how did I do that? Where did that melody come from? Because up till that moment, it didn't I exist. only sang American Pie and Paul McCartney and Lennon and McCartney. And it was the first time you had taken everything that you'd ever ingested as a fan or whatever, and your own thing came out. That's right. I end up telling that story in 1994 to a co-producer of a solo album I did, and he fell in love with it a little, and we put it on the album. So yeah. it was written probably in 1972 or 73, but it didn't see the light of day. Ooh, who was the inspiration for that song? Or was it, was there Paul, a- Paul McCartney. It was, okay, yeah. So it wasn't a person that you were writing a song no, about or anything like that. No, it was stylistically, was, yeah. I kind of thought I was singing a Paul McCartney song off of Ram yeah. or something like that. And it was like an epiphany to just go, I, I just wrote that. Yeah. You became a songwriter in that moment. That, in that moment. Did that change what you thought about music? Well, it's a gradual thing for me. There was no intention on being in a band or anything like that. But running back to Martin yeah. and saying, wow, check this out. And he goes, well, that's really cool. So now the two of us kind of write a few little ditties and then, then we start singing at parties and then I think we got... I don't even know if we got hired financially, but we'd sing at the, a couple of weddings and maybe yeah. a bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah or something like that. And so by about 1974, 75, I'm in the house watching the Toronto Maple Leafs play Montreal on a Wednesday night, which was sacred. And my mother says, Alan, there's five scruffy guys at the door. Actually, maybe only four of them because I'll... I'll, I'll tell you why. She said, uh, there's, there's four scruffy guys at the door. I said, tell him he piss off. I'm watching. Uh, no, 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 you, be you better go. So I go at the front door and it's these guys saying, we've heard you singing at parties and we think you're great. Would you come and audition for our band? And I'm like, what? Are you joking? And I actually, I think I said yes just to, to get rid of them. Yeah. So sure enough, one of the guys came and picked me up a few days later. And the reason I think one of them was missing when they were on the front lawn is because the lead singer was told there was no rehearsal that night. Oh, I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. And so they've got me there. You're <laughs> looking for an upgrade. Right? Yeah. They say to me, what do you know? And I said, well, anything by the Beatles. Yeah. So they say, let's do Get Back. Brilliant. And I'm singing, and I can see in my peripheral, they're kind of going, oh, got to get this, right? <laughs> and so afterwards, they take a vote, and then there's the lead singer, he's hoofed. And, yeah. And eventually, we became a, a pretty damn good bar band. Yeah. But um, it imploded. We were broke, and that, that was it. We were done. Were there other day jobs and stuff like that happening for you yeah. while all that stuff was happening? Yeah. Everybody was holding down. Yeah. I, I was doing like factory work and yeah. stuff like that. But I had this uh, inclination, don't ask me why, but I always thought if I could do anything, I'd be a doctor. Okay. Even though, you know, broke and the whole bit. Yeah. So the band breaks up and I'm still working in a factory, but I think I'd love to get a job in a hospital and... I'll take it from there if I can get in the hospital and see what can become of that. 
So I bugged the hospital I, to the point where I just used with my Scottish accent. I just go, hello. And they'd go, nothing yet, Alan. <laughs> uh, so one day I was working cutting tubes and steel tubes. And a foreman came and said, there's a call. And the hospital called and said, still want a job? And I said, yeah. Then they hired me as an orderly. Okay. Then thinking I was going to benefit from the medical side of things, I took a job in autopsies. So I assisted in autopsies for four years on the side. As that was taking shape, I get a call from the bass player of the old band. He said, what do you think? And I said, no. Yeah. My famous last words were, okay, here's the deal. I'll join the band, but I'm not going on the road. It'll just be a hobby because I'm going to be a doctor. Yeah. How did that work out? Yeah. That's incredible. So, so there was a real pause between the, when you wrote your first song and when you picked it up again. Yeah. Yeah. But you lived some life. Yes. I mean, during the life of the first band, yeah. I really honed my songwriting skills. You know, I definitely upgraded. Nothing really worthy of... You know, looking back on it, uh, I don't know that anything would have made it per yeah, se, yeah. but really fine-tuned my skills. And were you a solo songwriter, like a guy in a room by himself no, with your guitar? No, I would interact with other musicians. Yeah. I kind of like I kind of like it when somebody gets on a piano or gets on a, nowadays, like on a loop yep. or gets on a guitar. I, that's my preference. I the like collaboration. To, yeah, I like yeah. to collaborate, but I'm a top-line guy. It's all about melody and it's all about lyric. So by the time... We formed the band that will become Glass Tiger. I'm really digging in now. And uh, these things are upgrading all the time. As a songwriter, there are obviously literalists, autobiographical literalists, who take something that has actually happened to them. And then there's esoteric songwriters. I remember interviewing Noel Gallagher uh, once, and he said, um, I don't know what a Wonderwall is, you tell me. Exactly. You know, and that kind of thing. Where do you fit in that spectrum? Definitely the esoteric. Yeah, okay. I just emote, and then I go back and look at it just like you would. Okay. And I try to figure out, like, as, as you're listening to it and you're going, oh, he's talking about Scotia, which is Scotland. Oh, it must be because he's Scottish and the town he comes from. I'm, I'm looking at it somewhat similarly, but but maybe I'm a little more on the inside. Yeah. Here's a classic example, much more recently. Uh, I'm sure you're aware I suffered a stroke in 2015 and I've had some health issues. And people thought I was going to have some big life-altering moment. And I didn't. I just went about my business to heal. But I wrote a song a couple of years ago called This Is Your Life, which has gotten great reviews and... Now, when I look back on it, it's, it probably is uh, influenced by my fight back yeah. and how I feel about the world around me having suffered that. But I didn't know that at the time at all. You thought you were being as esoteric as whatever, yeah. as like... Yeah, I yeah, just thought... As interpretive or, yeah. I just thought, oh, that's a catchy line. This is your life. This just flows out. It becomes kind of like poetry. If you can take me back to the, the early moments of the Thin Red Line and what inspired you yeah. at the time and um, yeah. how you settled on the sound and the tempo and everything. There's only two songs that I had read particular topics that I wanted to get into melody and into lyric 
there's a song called Ancient Evenings, which was a book by Norman Mailer. And Thin Red Line's the other one. And I'd been reading about a Scottish Highland regiment called the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders. And I was reading about uh, the particular battle, uh, the battle of the Crimea, where the charge of the Light Brigade yeah. had uh, taken place. And uh, I can't remember if I planted that seed with Al Conley of Glass Tiger, and I think Sam was the other one, but they uh, created this atmosphere that just lends itself to my trying to get that story out. Yeah. And I did so with a specific purpose in mind. I want to take the hands of time have spoken for the chosen ones and certain things I'd read all for the thin red line. These were all little moments within the story that I'd, Kedekoi was where they camped out the night before the battle. So, I had a specific goal of getting that into melody. Uh, and I, I think I managed to do a good job of that. Oh, well, you sure did. And that's such a rarity, a song like that that has such a specific, uh, not agenda, but the, the inspiration for it is so specific about a time and a place, a historical and military time and a place. And then it's also, it can, and it can be received that way, and that's wonderful. And maybe people open up a book after they are inspired by the song. Also, it can just be digested as a pop song, as a beautiful pop song. Yeah. And those two things happening, like consecutive, concurrently rather, is almost impossible. You know, we, that, that was where Thin Red Line is one of the earliest surviving songs from our demo days. Okay. And uh, that's the kind of song that Chris Blackwell might have thought uh, it's a little too U2-ish, although we, right. had, we hadn't heard you 2 at that particular time. Yeah, um, sure. Sunday, bloody Sunday, pride in the name of all of That kind of, of thing. So yeah. he knew something that we didn't. Yeah. But if I may be so bold, I know that Valance fell in love with it because of that beautiful kind of eclectic melody and storyline. So, and, and I know that Brian... When Brian heard it in, in the early days, he was quite enamored with it cause, because it was so different. Yeah. It's almost like a screenwriter trying to translate a novel into a film. Yeah. You took this idea of a book and you translated it into a song. Except a filmmaker has two hours, you have three minutes. Right. Yeah. The rest of it's been kind of like um, more of a feel. Don't forget me when I'm gone was just a feel-good moment. Yeah. I have an amazing story about someday, and, and don't forget me when I'm gone if you'd like to hear it. Oh my God, that's exact. That's what we're here for, yeah. Okay, so Glass Tiger uh, partnered with songwriter producer called Jim Valance. Yep. And those of you out there who may think you don't know Jim Valance, you actually do as long as you know Brian Adams. Because Jim was a songwriting partner for Brian Adams for all the big hits, all of them. We get on an airplane, it was Sam Reed's very first time, it may have been Conley's, and it was probably only my third time ever getting on an airplane. And we fly to Vancouver, and Valence picks us up at the airport, 
And on the way in towards his home, he asked us who we're listening to these days. And we round off a few bands. And I remember that Jesus Jones was one of them. And I remember that Tears for Fears was another. So he stops the car outside Sam the Record Man and he runs in and he buys up three or four albums that I had mentioned. We get to his house and he makes some tea and we've never worked with this man before. This is all brand new. We're just trying to break the ice. And he starts putting vinyl on. And when it came to Tears for Fears, obviously the big hit at the time was Shout. And then suddenly, Everybody Wants to Rule the World came on. Yep. Which is a... And he said, shuffle beat. And he goes running into the studio and fires up a shuffle beat immediately on, on his little machine, which inspires Conley to do that and I immediately this is the first thing we've ever done with him ever Incredible. so now we're working on what's about to become don't forget me when I'm gone and uh, then after about I don't know maybe an hour of that Conley and Reed were smokers at the time so Jim was an avid non-smoker and I'm an avid non-smoker. So the two boys left and went for a walk to have a cigarette. Yeah. And they leave Valance and I alone. And Valance starts doing this chugga-chugga thing on the keyboard. Yeah. And now we're starting to write someday. And so when, by the time the boys come back and we work on that, the very the, the two very first things we ever do with Valance ends up being don't forget me when I'm gone and someday yeah both go on to win single of the year as Junos a year apart from the same album it'd never been done before so don't forget me when I'm gone the album stays in the charts 52 weeks and someday wins the the Juno the next year um you know the uh the main gist of the story you just told me about meeting Jim Valance is that incredible chemistry that can happen with artists when the right people are in the room together. You guys didn't know each other. You didn't have history together. No. And all of a sudden, you create songs that were recorded decades ago that are resonating and sound as good on the radio today as they sounded the day they were recorded. It's a very interesting dynamic. It, you could compare it to a relationship like... yeah. You walk in and you meet someone and you have immediate chemistry and before you know it, you might be having a drink together and before you know it, you're exchanging phone numbers and before you know it, you're, you're dating. You've got three kids. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. you've got three kids. <laughs> uh, a year apart from the same album. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's very much like that. You're doing a very intimate thing together, trying to create and write and you're trying to do it within the time frame of, you know, a few hours of meeting each other. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And I've been in numerous situations where you end up just saying, ah, mom, we'll go for a pint and we'll just have a beer and we'll go our separate ways. Yeah. But um, 
most times you, you get something productive out of it. Don't forget me when I'm gone. Why do you think it hit so hard? What, I mean, it changed your life. That song changed your life forever. What do yeah, you think it just, is about uh, that song? I mean, granted, we can all sing along to it live. It's, gosh, it's, it's just beautiful. But what is it about this song that you think hit at the time, and why is it timeless? Tough questions. I know, Alan. It has that chemistry of feel good. It's got feel good all over it. It's one of those songs that's not asking you to think too much in terms of, you know, this convoluted lyric that takes you on this journey. This one just tends to uh, let you uh, kick back and, and tap your foot and get stuck in a traffic jam and not feel so bad about it. And it lifts your spirits up. It's just got that feel good moment to it. The signature entry with a drum pattern into the horns and stuff. You know, if you like melody at all, it's going to grab you right away. I mean, even Left Sets, Bob Left Sets, gave it two thumbs up as, you know, one of the best pop songs ever. Yeah. And uh, th- he doesn't he doesn't do that very readily. No, he does not. Right? So yeah. uh, we'll take that as a compliment, Bob. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, I think that's what it is. It's, it's got great melody. It's got simple lyric that you don't have to think too deeply about and it's got that payoff line in the chorus that you can't help but sing when you step when you leave the room you're still singing it well that's one of the things as a, would you would you say that if if people were asking for your advice about songwriting i mean you're a guy that's still doing it this is still something that you've been doing constantly even after your health issues this is something that still brings you joy right. something that you probably feel compelled to do right am i wrong yeah you no. feel compelled to do it um like, I, I've heard people say that about writers, like if you're a novelist or a fiction writer or anything like that, that if you're stuck, just sit down in front of the keyboard and start typing some words. Like, start yeah, going. I, I mean, mean it, I'm a little different in as much as um, I only write when I sort of need to. As soon as someone says to me, there's this thing, that's when I go to work. Okay, yeah. So, for example... I go to a, a meeting that has nothing to do with songwriting. It's a guy that's interested in putting some project together. And at that meeting, there's a guy called Keith Pelly, who I was meeting for the first time. And Keith Pelly was the general manager of the Toronto Argonauts. Keith and I kind of had it off. Time goes by, and Keith Pelly calls me, and he says... You knew John Candy, didn't you? And I said, yeah, we're pals. He said, well, Toronto's hosting the Grey Cup, and we're going to do an homage to John, uh, the Sports Awards. Yep. Do you think you could write a song? I said, well, of course I can. Yeah. So I write this song, and it wasn't, it wasn't like John, the comedian. I, I called the song The Comedian, and it was about the darker side and the trials and tribulations of, of being almost possessed by your craft, whether it's songwriting or you're getting up at 4 a.m. to play hockey or or you're an actor or or a comedian. So Mark Jordan, who's on uh, The Storytellers. uh, That's right. He was in that chair not that long ago. Okay. I call Mark and I said, I'm having difficulty finishing this song. And Mark says, oh, okay. 
he said, well, let me hear it. And I played it for him. And he said, Alan, you need a real piano player. Call, call this young guy. And the young guy is Stefan Mocchio. Yeah. And Stefan says, yeah, I'll help you finish it. And we finished that song together for John. And then Stefan and I get to know each other. And then he's playing the piano at my house for the kids. And then he blurts out that he has this theme one day that one day it should be in the Olympics, this theme. Meanwhile, Keith Pelly calls me and says, I've, I've got a big surprise, a, a, a secret. I can't, I can't tell anybody, but I can't hold on to it. And I said, well, what is it? He said, I'm leaving the Argos. I'm going to become the head of the Olympic Consortium. Yeah. It's CTV. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, wow. I said, well, let me try and write for the Olympics. And he goes, okay. I said, don't call David Foster just yet. <laughs> he said, I'll give you three weeks. Yeah. And this is there all. There you go. Like you said before. What a story. Here's the job. I got the job that you don't think about it until right? somebody calls you and tells you, I need you to do this thing. Exactly. Yeah. So he just programmed chords into my piano. And I sat with a cup of tea and just hit the button. And the button would go, dun, dun. And I went, dun, there comes a moment. And I wrote, I believe in the power that comes. That was it. I just got chills right there when you were doing that. That's, there, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'd actually ever quite thought about this before, but me, most of your songs are anthemic. Yes. Right? Yes. I'm not the first person to realize this, no. but I just haven't realized it myself before. Of course you know no, that. No. Like, don't forget me when I'm gone. Someday, these are anthemic songs. Right. You write anthems. Yes. No matter how dark the topic is, I always try to take it from the dark to the light. Yeah. And the light usually is anthemic. So even a song like My Town, when you get to that chorus, Diamond Sun, Thin Red Line, you know? Something that everybody can sing together. Exactly. Like en masse. I mean, obviously you have to be true to yourself as a songwriter. It's tough to fake songwriting. Yes. To try and write. And I know that there's a machine in Nashville where people get together. I've, been, I've done it. You've done it, right? You've been there. Do you, how do you work within that construct? You got to know your place. It's like, wait a minute, you're from Scotland. You're a pop writer from Canada yeah. and you think you're coming to Nashville like write country songs. <laughs> the saving grace is you kind of know your place and you, you learn how to follow. And then I can contribute because melodically I'm sound. And of course, Nashville isn't what it was when I was a boy. Yeah. Now, pop influence in Nashville is commonplace. I've got a few songs in my solo career that I think if I played them for you now, you'd go, wow, Alan, it's, it's a great song. And it was written and created and produced in Nashville and yeah. brought home. Yeah. Uh, how, do you, how, do you, how do you instruct people who I don't want know to... if you can teach that. You can't teach it, right? I, no, yeah. uh, no, you can't teach it. But I could influence it. So I, if you think of me like Valence now with a young songwriter, I can influence them yeah. into, like, let's say I'm writing with some young female songwriter who's 24 years of age. So I don't know what it's like being 24 anymore. Certainly not 24 in this world that we live in. Yeah. So what I do is I, I let her run with it and I try to influence and bring my experience to it with melody and creativity of lyric and then maybe tell her how to weed out what she doesn't need, which is a real balance, yeah. you know? 
it's a real uh, so get get rid of the yeah, get rid of the facts the fault, yes get rid of that right. stuff but simple is hard simple is very difficult yes. you do it really really well Thank there's you. not a whole lot of excess baggage going on with your right. songwriting right and that's that's obviously not by accident that's by design you go back in and get rid of stuff yes. right and when when you when if you were to hear my stuff from the 70s into 1981 early glass tiger you'll hear all these five different sections yeah and now there's a b section and the b plus b section and you know you have to learn how to weed that oh, out yeah. right yeah it just comes with the experience right? right like let's get to that what jim valance recognized in that chorus let's keep that exactly. for later those exactly and so everybody has the right and the gift of being able to make noise yeah and you should and everybody can hammer on a guitar like your old dad can play that like yeah. my old dad belt it out yeah. huey in the pub or whatever <laughs> but <laughs> that's it out huey let's go right love it eventually you know there's there's a group yeah and it's a large group where all of a sudden you go ah now that's great you know i remember listening to uh, say morrissey or something or the smiths when i was a kid and that that was a band that truly changed the way that i listened to music um I, I didn't know what he was singing about. I had no idea what, what his words meant, but it, it somehow the, the, he conveyed the emotion of it. And I'm not so sure that I recognized the historical inspiration for the Thin Red Line the first time I heard it either, right? right? It was maybe a bit too young for, to, to actually appreciate it, but the, the intent was in the music. Right. It, I knew it was important and I knew it was being taken seriously. And that's kind of like the key to things, right? There, you weren't, nobody was messing around. Like when I think about those songs. So it, though it took me a few years to appreciate and to go back as an adult and, and discover what you were actually singing about, mm -hmm. I think it's the, the fact that you're able to convey authenticity and purpose in your music. And whether or not the, the recipient understands the words specifically. Well, look at when you go to another country. Yeah. That was a life altering moment where you land in Germany for the first time in your life and there's a thousand kids standing outside the TV station who are in love with Thin Red Line, that you're singing to them in English about a Scottish regiment, yeah. but there's something conveyed to them that, that breaks through. Yeah. So um, there's, you know, you're talking about being younger, not quite maybe grasping the meaning, but at least you were listening in the language the, the, no, it's true. This is, you're exactly right. People in other languages, it didn't matter who incredible. didn't speak English. We're still getting the, the authenticity and the intent yeah. of the art. And that's, that's incredible, man. It is. A, it's, it's, and it becomes that old classic, you know, music truly is an international language. Yeah. I was reading the other day, and I'm not quite sure whether we spoke to each other first or whether we sort of sang each other first. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, it goes that far back. Whether it's a chant or whatever it is, what came first, right? The chicken or the egg? Right? Um, Alan, thank you uh, for taking the time to do this. It's been a real joy talking to you. Thank you ultimately for the music. It's given me a whole ton of escapism and pleasure and joy over the years as it has for millions. So thank you very much. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for listening. This has been Storytellers. Join me, Paul McGuire, live this summer with Kim Mitchell, Glass Tigers' Alan Frew, 5440's Neil Osborne, and many others for an experience you'll remember always. 
The 97 South Song Sessions Songwriters Festival is happening this July, the 21st to the 23rd, in Penticton, British Columbia's incomparable wine country. An intimate, bluebird-style music performance that features songwriters in the round, playing their hits and relating stories of a life in music. Tickets and information at 97southsongsessions.com. Download the free Stingray Music mobile app and listen to the 97 South Song Sessions channel today. Stingray Music. Life's on you. Music's on us.